Well, like clockwork, every year, about January 1st, you will notice that gym parking lots all across the country will fill up. And if you're a gym-going person, you'll notice that for about six weeks till about the second week in February, it'll be hard to find a parking spot. It'll be difficult to get your normal routine in. You might have to squeeze past a few more people or wait for that piece of equipment or the class that you're interested in, maybe fuller than it typically is, because we know that around January 1, people make New Year's resolutions, and one of the most popular New Year's resolutions is to lose weight. And whenever we're considering whether it's a weight loss plan or purchasing a product or just implementing some strategy in our lives, you know, we would do well to ask ourselves two very important questions. The first question I believe we should ask is simply this, is this going to work? If you're considering buying a product or purchasing a service or adopting some strategy in life, the first question we need to ask would simply be, is this actually able to deliver on what the promises of the commercial are? And secondly, just as importantly, I think it is imperative that we ask, how long am I going to have to wait before I see results? And to be sure, when people consider buying a product or service or they're considering implementing some strategy in their life, virtually everybody asks themselves, do I think this will actually be successful? Do I think it will actually work? But that second question about how long should I expect to wait before I see results is equally important. Because as I said earlier, about six weeks into the new year, statistically about 80% of those who want to lose weight and get on a weight loss plan, about 80% of them quit around week six. And what's fascinating is a general rule of thumb that a lot of people will tell you is in order to see visible results from a fitness plan, from a workout plan, you typically will have to wait about eight weeks. So you could have the right plan, the right strategy, and the right product, but if you don't know how long it takes to get results, you're setting yourself up for an awful lot of unnecessary confusion and discouragement. And today, as we finish this short three-week series through the book of Haggai, we're going to learn two very important truths relating to God's blessings. And we're essentially going to ask those same two questions. When it comes to God's blessings in our lives... Will it actually work? Are God's blessings powerful enough to change my life? Can they deliver on what God promises they can do? And secondarily, how long should I expect to wait before I begin to see results? So if you have your Bible, I would invite you at this time. We're going to jump in. we got a lot of ground to cover to finish up this series. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 2, starting off with verses 15 through 19. So feel free to turn or click there, and if you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen. Haggai 2, verse 15 says this. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you. And all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. 
Verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet still in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. Well, in order to understand what is going on in our passage of Scripture today, we're going to need to go back and review the past couple of weeks that we have studied through Haggai. And if you remember, back in chapter 1 of Haggai, God gives a message to a prophet named Haggai to deliver to his people, and he tells them that they need to resume the work of building the temple in Jerusalem. Because you see, about 15 years before God spoke through Haggai, the Jewish people were in their homeland, and God said, you need to build a temple. I have a mission for you. And while God's people initially began to build that temple, after they encountered some discouragement and opposition, they gave up. And for about 15 years, God's temple just sat there in ruins. Well, as God's temple sat there in ruins and God's people persisted in disobedience, we read what happened to the land in Haggai 1, 9 through 10. And I'll just read this for you to recap from a few weeks ago. Haggai 1, 9 through 10 says this, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, that is the temple, that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore... The heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. You see, the people of God in Haggai's day were planting crops that they were very well familiar with, but they weren't performing so great. Their crops were not producing anywhere near where they should have, and in fact, their economy was actually cursed, as we just read, because God's people were being disobedient, and God allowed the produce, the land, and thereby their economy to be cursed so that they would turn back to God. And after Haggai brings this message back in Haggai chapter 1 that we just read, that, hey, your economy is cursed and your crops are cursed because of your disobedience, upon hearing this message, God's people immediately responded obediently. You can go on and read, and you'll remember if you were here a few weeks ago in Haggai 1, 14 through 15, we saw this a few weeks ago. Haggai 1.14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of all the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now catch this. On the 24th day of the sixth month. So let's go back to our passage and just think about what has happened over the past three months. God has given a message to his people because of your disobedience, your economy has been cursed. And what's implicit in that is, if you obey, I will restore your fortunes and bless you. Well, on the 24th day of the sixth month, God's people immediately began to work. They immediately began to obey. But as we saw in Haggai 2, 18 and 19, our passage for today, we see that God's blessings don't come until three months later. Again, I'll read Haggai 2, 18 and 19. 
which is our passage for today. Consider from this day onward, in other words, the 24th day of the ninth month, consider from this day onward, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider is the seed yet in the barn. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day, that is the 24th day of the ninth month, from this day on, I will bless you. This means that God's people were completely obedient. They were cutting down trees. They were assembling heavy rocks and stones. They were toiling and sweating and laboring obediently to God who told them to rebuild the temple. They were obedient, perfectly obedient, for three whole months. And during those three whole months, there wasn't a shred of evidence that God was restoring their economy or blessing them. If you're a note taker, you might want to write down the first truth we see in today's passage And that is this, oftentimes there is a delay between when God's people obey and when God's blessings arrive. I'm going to say that again. Oftentimes there's a delay between when God's people obey and when God's blessings arrive. Because you see, although the people of God began to obey On the 24th day of the sixth month, God's blessings lagged behind and did not actually show up and materialize until the 24th. Remember, we just read in chapter 2, God says, from this day forward, I'll bless you. From this day forward, I'll reverse this curse on your economy. And in Haggai's day, the blessings that God promised were physical. They were material. They had to do with their economy. And to be sure, I believe there are times in our lives as children of God where God does bless us physically or materially. But, you know, if you're reading the Bible and you read about God's blessings, more times than not, God's blessings have to do with spiritual blessings rather than physical or material. If you read through how God blesses his people, particularly in the New Testament, you will see that they're primarily spiritual blessings. And I can think of no better sort of um, summary of these spiritual blessings that God promises his children than in Galatians 5, to 23. Let's look at the spiritual blessings available to us as Jesus followers in the New Covenant. Galatians 5, to 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit, catch that, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, those are the primary blessings that God works out in our lives by the Holy Spirit. And I think everybody here would raise their hand and say, sign me up for more contentment and patience and self-control and gentleness. We all crave more of that in our lives. We all crave the fruit of the Spirit. And we may think, since it says it's the fruit of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit just sort of automatically brings this about in our lives. But nothing can be further from the truth. While God does work these in our lives by the power of his spirit, we have a role, and you can read about that in the same book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Galatians 6, 7 through 8 says, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice 
of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Remember, it's fruit of the Spirit, sticking with that same idea. You'll always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. In other words, God is at work in his children. The Holy Spirit does produce that fruit. But our role is to make sure we're planting and watering and weeding so he can bring that fruit in our lives. You may say, well, how do we do that? That sounds abstract. Well, we do it through reading scripture, through praying, through giving thanks, through fellowshipping, through worshiping. Those are those things we can do to plant to the Spirit, to allow the Holy Spirit to bring fruit in our lives. And I think it's no accident that when God describes his spiritual blessings in our lives, when God describes how he makes us more gentle, more patient, more kind, more long-suffering, it's no accident that he says that that's a lot like fruit. You see, one of the more common fruits you would see in the land of Israel would be a pomegranate. And let's just think about a pomegranate for a minute. God, in his infinite wisdom, says the way I bring spiritual blessings, making you more like Jesus, the way I do that is a lot like the way fruit comes about. And as I understand it, if I were to plant a little pomegranate plant, it would take me five entire years of watering, protecting, making sure it's healthy. It would take me five years of cultivating it before it would bear any fruit. And furthermore, it would take, as I understand it, about 20 years before the fruit is all that good and listen, I don't think it's any accident that when God says, when I work in your lives to bring about these spiritual blessings to make you more like my son, it's a lot like growing fruit. It takes a very long time. It's no accident that God describes his work, his blessings in our lives to make us who are sinful and selfish more like his son. He describes it like fruit. It's not an instantaneous just add water thing. To be sure, there are certain cases where people seem to be miraculously transformed in an instant. But by and large, God works incrementally. And he describes that process like being that of bringing about fruit. And it's sort of the question we said earlier. How long should I expect to wait before I see results? Well, when it comes to the blessings of God, it seems that we're oftentimes right to expect there to be quite a while between when we obey and when those blessings actually materialize in our lives. And that sounds like bad news at first. I mean, who wants to hear that when I'm looking at my impatience or my temper or how discontent I naturally am and I'm praying to God to please make me more like his son, the way I want it to work is like a giant on-off switch that we just flip this sucker the first time I pray, and all of a sudden I'm gentle and patient, and I'm in control, and it's just instantaneous. But while it may not be good news that God works over a period of time, it's really helpful to know that. Because otherwise, you know what might happen? I might work so hard, I might be completely obedient and asking God to help me in some area in my life or with some relationship 
And if it doesn't happen on my sort of supposed timetable, I might conclude one of two things. One, I might conclude I'm not doing enough and I start beating myself up, which may not be the case. Or two, I start to think God's actually not going to deliver on his promises. Perhaps you're working through some issues in a relationship right now. You're working towards mending some very deep wounds and hurts. Perhaps it's in a marriage and you're not seeing the results as quickly as you would like. Maybe don't blame your spouse and say they're not doing enough or blame yourself and say you're not doing enough. Maybe consider you're being obedient, but just like the people in Haggai's day, God's blessings often come on a delay after our obedience. You could be doing everything right, so don't beat yourself up by expecting instantaneous growth. Oftentimes, there is a delay between when God's people obey and when God's blessings arrive. Let's continue with Haggai chapter 2, picking up in verse 20. We'll read the last verses of this book. Haggai 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone, by the sword of his brother. And listen to this. This is amazing. Verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And we may be going, what on earth is going on here? What's the deal with Zerubbabel? What's this deal about a signet ring? Well, we're going to have to back up a little bit to understand this passage as well, because you see, Zerubbabel had an evil grandfather that was a king, and he was over God's people, and his name was Jeconiah, and he was often called Coniah, sort of as a nickname. And you see, this king was extremely wicked. Zerubbabel's grandfather, this man who God says, Zerubbabel, I'm blessing you. You're like a signet ring on my hand. You're like a symbol. You're, you're synonymous with my authority and favor. Zerubbabel, I'm blessing you. What we need to understand this passage is to know that his grandfather, Zerubbabel's grandfather, a guy named Coniah, was a wicked, wicked king. And we can read about him in Jeremiah 22, 24, and 30. Jeremiah 22, 24 says this, As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, Zerubbabel's grandfather, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear you off. Verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man, that is Kaniah, the grandfather of Zerubbabel, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So you say, what's going on here? 
Well, when God comes to Zerubbabel through Haggai and says, you're like a signet ring, a couple generations before, God through Jeremiah told Zerubbabel's grandfather, Coniah, though you were a signet ring on my hand, I would take you off. And furthermore, through Jeremiah, he says, none of your descendants, no one from your lineage is going to rule over my people. Essentially, Coniah, I'm cursing you and all of your descendants. And here in our passage in Haggai, we see that God is reversing the curse on Zerubbabel. And this is good news, not just for Zerubbabel. It's amazing news for us as well, because if you read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you see the genealogy of Jesus. It starts off, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And if you jump to verse 12, you'll see in this lineage of Jesus... It says, after the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim, that is Coniah, was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And if you read that passage all the way through, you'll see it eventually lands with the ancestry of Jesus. In other words, the curse that God pronounced on wicked Coniah, if he didn't bless and reverse it, not only would Zerubbabel not be eligible to rule over God's people, Jesus wouldn't apparently be credentialed to be the Messiah. So what we see going on in Haggai chapter 2 is this. God's blessings are powerful enough to reverse the curses in our lives. God's blessings are powerful enough to reverse the curses in our lives. And the curses in our lives can come from many places. We just saw that at least some of the time curses can come directly from God, such as the case uh, with the people in Haggai's day on their economy, uh, or Kaniah was cursed directly by God. But there's many different sources of curses in our lives, those things that keep us weighed down. I'll name three briefly. Curses in our lives can come from generational sin. They can come from our own sin. And they can come, third, from just unknown sources. You can read a little bit about this idea of generational sin in Jeremiah 32, 18, where it says, You show unfailing love to thousands, but you also bring the consequences of one generation's sin upon the next. And the idea there is that sometimes the sins of our fathers have a way of finding themselves in us. I'm reminded of the lyric of a song that says, one year, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years down the road in your life, you'll look in the mirror and say, my parents are still alive. You know, many people have great traits they inherit from their parents and from their grandparents and from their great-grandparents, but also with that comes the not-so-great traits. Be honest, I don't know how much of this is environmental how much of this is genetic and how much of this is spiritual. I don't really know that it matters all that much, but it seems evident that the sins of our parents, at least the proclivity or tendency towards those sins, tend to show up in the sons and daughters. In addition to generational sin, our own sin can welcome and invite curses into our lives. This is a tough verse, but it's a helpful verse for those of us who sometimes are unjustified and feeling sorry for ourselves, and I'm pointing to myself on this, Proverbs 19.3 
says this, people ruin their own lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the Lord. Ouch. Have you ever been guilty like I have of sort of being like, why, God, why? And it's, God's like, I had nothing to do with your stupidity, Matt. This is totally on you. This is not a test. This is not a trial. You're being foolish. Well, oftentimes the curses in our lives, we invite them in, we welcome them into our home by our own sin. And then third and finally, another source of curses in our lives are simply unknown sources. If you look at John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, listen to what Jesus says about a man who was born blind. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins? In other words, the curses I welcome into my own life. Or his parents' sins, generational sin, the sins of their fathers, which one is it? And Jesus says, neither. And Jesus doesn't even really answer. He just says, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. This happened so the power of God can be seen in him. Well, the good news I have for you today, and the good news that I'm comforted by is this. Regardless of where these curses come from, these snares, these sins, these tendencies, God's blessings are powerful enough to reverse the curses in our lives. So let's close by asking this question. What steps can we take so God can break the curses in our lives and bless us? What steps can we take as the children of God? What should we do? What are we responsible for? in order to set the conditions for God to reverse the curses in our lives, to break them, and for us to be ready to receive his blessings. Well, first and foremost, if you've never trusted on Christ, it all starts there. You see, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, we all have a certain curse pronounced upon us. Not only are we going to die physically one day because of our own sin, there is an eternal spiritual death for all of us that die in our own sins without anyone covering and removing our sins. And that is a, that is a judgment that is pronounced on all of mankind because the Bible is also clear that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all know right from wrong and so often... We choose what's selfish and wrong and expedient rather than what we know to be right. Through our disobedience, through our sin, we have these curses, if you will, from God. And the Bible says that every single person that's walked the face of this earth has sinned except one. And that's the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is tempted in all ways like we are and yet without sin. And what's going on at the cross is simply this. Jesus, who due to his perfect obedience, has all the blessings coming from God, harmony with God, no guilt, no shame, no punishment. Jesus, who has all those blessings, says, hey, Matt, every single person, I'm going to make a trade with you. I'm going to trade all my blessings to you 
and take all the curses and everything that goes with that upon myself. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. If you're here today and you have not yet trusted in Christ, you are like all the rest of us, a sinner in need of grace. And I don't share this as a person who's got it all together. I like how someone else has described this. When a Christian shares the good news of Jesus, they're like a poor beggar telling another poor beggar where they can find food. And that's the spirit in which I want to say to you, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, believe that he died on the cross for your sins, was raised on the third day, I invite you to do that. Following this service, please come up to our prayer corner. We have so many people that would love to meet with you and pray for you and help you with that. Because the main way in which the curses in our lives are reversed are by us trusting in Christ. The first step we need to take is trust in Christ. The second step, we need to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. We need to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit if we want to be rid of these curses and we want to have our arms open wide for God's blessings. Romans 8, 1 through 2 and 11 say the following. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And then if we look on further, we'll see the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. In other words, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have the spirit living in them. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he'll give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying there is the same power, the same dynamic power, the same game changer that the Holy Spirit was that took the dead corpse of Jesus and physically, by its power, resurrected it and brought it back to life. That same Spirit lives in every believer, and therefore, by the power of the Spirit, we can be victorious over sin. Physical death was overturned by the power of the Spirit, and our spiritual death, our enslavement to sin, is overturned by that same Spirit and by that same power. Of course, we're not talking here about living a perfect life or a sinless life, but the New Testament kind of assumes growth and victory over sin, not because we can just will it or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, the Bible says we're unable by our own power to overcome sin, but the game changer is the Holy Spirit that comes and lives inside of every believer and now enables them and empowers them to live victorious over sin and the curses in our lives. We need to be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Third, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Romans 13, 14 says this. 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, when you provide for something, maybe your retirement or the kids' college or vacation next year, when you provide for something, you look down the corridor of time into the future and say, what can I do now to set this up later? We're providing. I'm saving money for a vacation. I'm saving money or investing money for retirement or whatever. That's what providing or provisions are, and we are by the word of God, told not to make provisions for our sinful desires, for our flesh. In other words, if someone has a problem of just being consumed with gambling, which I don't, not because I'm virtuous, but because I'm cheap, but if someone cannot control themselves and they gamble and it's compulsive, and they can't control that part of their flesh, they ought not plan vacations to casinos. Don't make provision for the flesh. If there are certain apps that breed discontentment in your life and envy and ingratitude, you delete the app. If there are TV subscriptions that just carry you away with materialism or lust or violence or whatever it may be, you cancel the TV subscriptions. You make no provision for the flesh. You take steps now to try and prevent yourself from having an easy path to indulge in sin because with those sins will come curses. Fourth and finally... What's the fourth step that we can take? One word, persevere. That's it, persevere. It's one thing if we trust in Christ, if we're encouraged by the Holy Spirit, we make no provision for the flesh, but the Bible again and again calls us to be people that endure, that persevere. Galatians 6, 9 says this, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In other words, the blessings that are out there are out there for those who persevere who don't obey for a season and then not see it on the timetable they supposed it would come on. They don't see God's blessing showing up quick enough, and then they pull the plug prematurely, which we all have a tendency to do, I think, if we're being honest. God's blessings are not to be had if we are going to say, I'll obey to a certain point or for a certain duration, but at this point in time, if I'm not seeing God bless me, I'm going to throw the towel in. See, a few moments ago, we just read the people of God in Haggai's day were obedient day in, day out for three long months. And the stock market didn't get more green and less red. 
The crops didn't magically overnight look any different. Everything seemingly stayed the same. But they trusted God, and they believed that he was able to deliver on the blessings that he promised. We need to remember that there's oftentimes a delay between when God's people obey and the blessings of God arrive. And if we keep that truth in the forefront of our minds, it should spur us on to persevere, to endure, and to see that we don't get off course because the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. And if God promises us something in his word, he promises a blessing. He promises more gentleness, more self-control, he promises more love, more peace, more patience, more tranquility in our lives. What the Bible says, if we keep planting and keep watering, that fruit will eventually come. God is able to keep his word and bless us if we'll persevere. I want to close by asking the two questions I asked in the beginning. When it comes to God's blessings... Will they actually work? <laughs> Absolutely. What kind of timetable should I be working with? What should I expect? A day of obedience? A week of obedience? Maybe I've got a horrible temper. Maybe I'm horribly materialistic. Maybe I'm very discontent. And I've realized that I haven't been planting and watering to the Spirit. So I get in the Word of God every day. I start praying every day. I worship with my heart. I fellowship with other believers. I give thanks and I do that for a day and then two days, then a week, then a month. If we don't understand that God's blessings often lag behind our obedience, we're going to be very confused unnecessarily. We're going to be very discouraged and likely to throw the towel in. But God's blessings are powerful enough to change our lives and work. We just must remember that oftentimes those blessings in our lives lag behind our obedience. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the Old Testament and the New. Thank you, Lord, for writing this down through the prophets. It's written for our instruction. Everything in the Old Testament is written for our instruction and an example for us to learn from, whether good or bad. God, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, and I know with the nature of man that is so true because when I read about your people in the time of Haggai, it's like looking in a mirror for so many of us. God, I ask that you would help us as a people know what kind of timetable to have in our minds, to know that your blessings often lag behind our obedience. God, I ask that we would also know that your blessings are powerful enough to reverse even the curses in our lives. God, I pray that you would encourage us as your children, as your people, to take your mission to heart, to be obedient. Our mission is not to build a physical temple but to build up the spiritual temple of your church. 
God, may you help us to make more and better disciples and do our specific role in that to make the biggest possible difference for your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.